Joshua Hovert. He came in last year with a team from Scotland, yes, and uh, they taught us on the art of hearing God, and it was wonderful. And then as the year went, we uh, offered the invitation for Joshua to come to teach the uh, Understanding Dreams and Visions seminar that we have just had, which has been tremendous. What I like is the solid foundation on the Word, giving us a consistent language to be able to use as we're talking about these things. Very strong foundation on the character of the person as the vessel, as the instrument over and above the gift, so that the gift can actually minister the heart and the glory of God. And so have been very much appreciated not only how that's been taught, but how it's been modeled by Joshua himself. All right, Josh, would you come? I find out, I found out about a year or so ago why my dad named me Joshua Peter. I figured it would be one of those things that he would have told me growing up. And actually found out through my mom. We were talking about naming our son. Actually, it must have been more than it must have been two years ago because it was just after we named. It was just after we had my son, where we're yeah because my mom was around and she told me that there was a guy who used to come to the church that we were part of. I was raised in vineyard churches. I'm from California originally, and. So I was raised, if, if those of you that are familiar with the Vineyard Church movement with John Wimber and, and uh, the all-can-play theology that, he'd, that he really taught, that everybody was invited to, to play in the kingdom. And that gifts weren't for just the select few, but it was for everybody. Because it was God's presence, it was his spirit. And it, would been, it said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So that means everybody. It doesn't just mean a select few. And so he really taught everybody can do this stuff. It doesn't make anybody special. It's just, it's his presence, it's his love, it's what he wants to do. I said, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the manifestation of the Spirit, and then 1 Corinthians 14 that talks about the way the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are to move in a corporate gathering, they're couched around 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter. It's almost like Paul knew that we would have to have a revelation of the depth of love in order to move in the Spirit because God is love, God is light, God is Spirit, so God's Spirit is His light and His love. We can make that connection. And so we need to, we need to have this rooted and established in us is that loving one another. I'm gonna, I can't, I've never counted it up. I know people have, but how many one another's there are in the New Testament? There's a lot of them. So anyway, this uh, minister used to come in. I think he was an Episcopalian priest. I can't quite remember. Uh, and he was involved with the Welsh Revival uh, in the early 1900s. And his father was the one that had prayed for Evan Roberts to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Evan Roberts, for those of you that know the story of the Welsh Revival, was the man. I mean, he basically all of, really the scope of Christianity was changed because of the Welsh Revival. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible revival. And so this, this man's father had prayed for Evan Roberts to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this, this young man was involved with the Welsh revival and saw the pitfalls of revival, saw the incredible power of God on display. And he spent the rest of his life teaching people about the ways and nature and character of God. And his name was Peter Joshua. And so my dad really liked, the, he really liked this guy because the guy taught about 
the depth of God moving in the spirit, the, the, how, to, how to host the presence of God, all that kind of stuff. And so he thought, if I had a son one day, I'd hope he would be like that. So I want to name him Joshua Peter. And so there was, I found that out like two years ago. I was like just about undone when I realized <laughs> my dad chose pretty well because <laughs> that's my passion. <laughs> and I had no idea. It wasn't like I was like, oh, great, I'm going to go after a guy named Peter Joshua. And he, he passed away a number of years ago. I wish that would have been amazing to meet him. But it's amazing what, what parents understand about their children. And what they know prophetically, like even before they're born. It's amazing how many, how many men and women are named in Scripture and then fulfill their namesake. Without, you know, it's just kind of like, you kind of think like it's a, you're guessing. <laughs> I hope this name sticks. <laughs> I, when we named my daughter Savannah, I had this great meaning behind it and everything. Like it was, it was really solid, right? And the Lord had spoken to me. I met her in a dream before she was born and knew her name was Savannah. And so I was convinced. And I went around telling everybody her name is Savannah. And my wife was like, you may have met her in a dream, but I don't know yet. So I'm not on board with Savannah. I like Savannah, but I'm not on board with that yet, okay? So I said, that's okay. You'll come on board when you meet her. But I already met her in a dream. And uh, so then she was born. And I'm sitting there with my daughter going, oh, no. I don't know if I can name her. This is, such a, this is such a monumentous moment. How can I actually choose a name for this thing? This little girl. I was so convinced up until the moment that she was supposed to be Savannah that when I have to call her Savannah, I'm like, this is like a big decision. And my wife looks at her and says, oh, you're right, she's Savannah. And so she had the faith in the moment. I had the faith leading up until the moment of birth. She had the faith in the moment. Her name is Savannah. And... Uh, and so my daughter calls herself Sama. <laughs> she, she couldn't say Savannah, so she's been Sama the whole time. And so when she introduces herself, to, she knows she's Savannah. She could say Savannah now, but people say, what's your name? She says, I'm Sama. It's like, okay, I like it. I'll go with it. <laughs> I, I think I, I want to give a short word uh, of exhortation and, and then just move into some prophetic ministry. And, um, and maybe... Yeah, we'll move into some prophetic ministry and then just kind of see where we go. I, I'd like to, I think that's what I would like to do as I've just been kind of seeking the Lord about this morning. Uh, really what I want to talk about this morning uh, for, brief, for a brief time is unity and, and just how absolutely paramount and tantamount unity is to the glorious display of God on the earth. Because really we can't hope to have power without unity. We can't. God will sometimes breathe on our ineptitude because he's God and he loves us. But if we want consistent manifestation of his glory in our midst, it's going to require unity. And you know what? Unity is not unity unless, until it hurts to be united. It really isn't. Then it's just following people that you like. And God will test your ability to remain united. I'm not saying it'll always be painful to be united. No, there's, a glory, there's lots of times that everything is amazing and you're going after God and you're running together. But what tests your ability to remain united is the difficult times. Unity is tested through pain, through trial. And when you hold fast, that's what Paul says, hold fast to the hope that was given to you. Or the author of Hebrews, maybe Paul. Hold fast. So we're, so, we're so used to, to instant gratification that when things become difficult, we look for something to placate that difficulty. And a lot of times that's leaving the community we're part of. And I've seen, I've seen too many communities implode because people can't stick, stick it out and say, there's something greater at play here. 
And so unity becomes this, well, you think about it from this perspective. God is three in one, right? When we all hold to orthodox theology here, little O, not big O. I don't have anything wrong against big O orthodox, but we're talking about you know, standard theological presuppositions that God is three in one, which is a mystery in and of itself. We've talked about that throughout this weekend. That's a mystery in and of itself. And how do you really understand three in one? So if God has chosen a people to move through his bride, which is us, individually, corporately, the, the bride is a mystery. When you look at scripture, it's far more mysterious than, than we think. We say, well, I'm his bride. And, and that's true. I'm not saying that's not true. But there's far more depth to that statement than we realize. He's chosen a people to move through to display his name. He says, I will place, he says, I've, I've written my name in your hearts. I've placed my law in your hearts. I've given you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, that my spirit will be in you. So that so the glory of God would be on display through us to the world. So Revelation 21 says, like one of the last statements in the Bible, that the spirit and the bride would say, come, and then everyone who heard that cry would echo that cry, come, and come and drink from the living waters. Like we're, we're supposed to be the glorious display of him on the earth. So you have this, this God that is three persons in one essence. So it, within the Trinity is this perfect united substance. I don't even know how you can really communicate that. Within him is unity. And so then we come along discombobulated. I mean, speaking, how many times have we had conversations where we've said, about all of our friends, well, I probably shouldn't have done it that way, or we've come, we've, we've, we've just had critical things we've said one to another. It's a common human thing we do. I'm not calling anybody out. I've done it myself. And we hope that God would move through us, yet we're critical of others and refuse to be united with others. And God, being the one that's perfectly united within himself, is hoping that he's seen through us, yet we can't be united with one another. And we hope people see his unity without being ourselves united, because we have this idea that we need to be personal, personally autonomous, which is really the, the, the outworking of the fall. You could become like God. You don't need God anymore. You could do it yourself. And God's waiting for a people that he can breathe on, that would carry his spirit, that would display his absolute, complete, and utter submission within himself to the world. So I want people to see my glory through you, but we need to look like who he is. And, that, and one aspect of that, a large aspect of that, but one aspect of that is unity. In Scripture, in the New Testament, there's eight places where the term one accord is used. Seven of them are in the book of Acts, one is in the book of Romans. Eight, pla- eight places. So some of, seven of them are, are about the, the history and the movement of the Spirit in the churches, in, in the book of Acts, in the church. Romans, of course, is a theological statement, because Acts is the history of how the church spread Uh, the early church spread. Every time you see that term, one accord, which the term one accord is the Greek word homo thumadon. Let's say it together. That's a fun word. Homo thumadon. Isn't it just kind of fun? It just rolls off the tongue. Homo thumadon. Homo thumadon. (laughs) I think that's how you say it anyway. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I could... (laughs) Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Uh, But it's the word uh, of one accord. 
And uh, one, one commenter says about that word, it, it almost carries with it the connotation of a symphony. Everyone playing their part, but coming together in this. Because unity doesn't look like uniformity. Unity looks like everyone coming into, everybody's a different part. It's one body. Everybody coming together in this beautiful display of the glorious beauty of Christ. Working together, building one, and up, building one another up in love. Encouraging one another day after day. Loving one another, serving one another, looking out for one another, caring for one another. The grand symphony of God's design in his bride. So we're going, God's going, I can't, I'm, I can't wait until they capture the revelation that they are my grand symphony. And we're going, well, someone took the last of the cream today at church. That just really frustrates me. I should have gotten some of the cream. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but there's no chocolate chip cookies today. It should have been chocolate chip cookies today. <laughs> and God's going, when are they going to get the revelation that they are my beautiful symphony to the world? I'm waiting for them to cry out, come with my spirit. The spirit's already crying, come. Okay? The spirit doesn't need to cry that any louder. The spirit's already saying, come, come, come. It's the bride that comes in line with that. Come. So that word homothumadon, eight times in scripture, uh, seven times in the book of Acts. Acts 1.14, these were all continuing with one accord. So this is the very beginning of the church. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the, and that unity then released the calling of Matthew to take Judas's place. So unity released the call on Matthew's life to enter into. So there's 120 there continuing one, in one accord in the upper room. And, and they anoint Matthew to take Judas's place. So unity released a call. Unity releases people into their call. The Spirit will move, the Spirit will breathe, and will release people into their call. That's the first time you see it. Second time, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. They're all in one accord in one place. And this is a really good one. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Unity released the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in tongues of fire. Then they were spilled out onto the streets, and Peter preached the first evangelistic sermon, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. The outworking of one accord, being in unity together, united in purpose and intent, was the, really the first great evangelistic movement. And it ushered in the Holy Spirit into the church on the day of Pentecost. One accord. So if they wouldn't have been of one accord, God would have gone, okay, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. He's waiting for a people that will serve one another. In the book of Judges, um, there's, there's a, a number of times in the Old Testament that the statement uh, being of one consent or one man is put out, and it's essentially the same idea. In the book of Judges, there's a moment where the Israelites are being beaten by the Philistines, and it says that they came together as one man. And so this great wicked, actually it was, it was um, you know the story where the, it's almost like a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the, this, this guy, he's traveling through, he comes and stays in a city, and the, peop, the men in the city try to come and they want to take advantage of him. And the person who's sitting there, or who's, who's welcomed into his house, they take the concubine and they, and they basically just, they kill her. I mean, it's, it's like wicked, wicked evil. And so, the, the, you know, it's a, sometimes the Bible is quite strange, but the guy takes the concubine who's dead, cuts her up into 12 parts, sends her into 12 different areas and regions of Israel, 
and, and everybody sees this and says something absolutely evil has happened. And it says the people, because of the evil, come together as one man to unite against those that were practicing evil. So disaster, calamity brought the people together. That's interesting. Which is what happened in, in the beginning of the book of Acts. Disaster, and their, their frame of mind, disaster, Jesus dying, the death of the promise, the kingdom, the kingdom of God which was supposed to overtake the earth, disaster brought them together in one accord. Number three, the end of Acts 2. They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of the loaves and in prayers, and fear came on every soul, and many wonders and miracles taste, took place through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all according, to any, according as anyone had need. And continuing with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they shared food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Wow, they had favor with everybody. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they had favor with everybody. Everybody would listen. Like, that stands in stark contrast to the church today. Favor with everybody, and, ev- and people were being added to their number day by day. Continuing with one accord. Being united in intent and purpose. One, it, the way Romans describes it, the other place in one accord is, being with one soul and one heart. So unity brought salvation. Unity brought favor. Unity released power in Acts 4.24. Having heard, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then they go on to, to pray this great prayer. And at the end of that prayer, it says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they'd assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that any things which he possessed was his own. That's very different than we live today. (laughs) Everything is everybody's. They shared food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Oh, I already said that one. With great great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. How would you like great grace to be upon you? One accord. They were together. One heart, one soul, one accord. Moving together. What kept them in one accord? Responding to the Spirit saying, come. Their eyes are fixed on their Savior. Acts 5.12, many miracles and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all of one accord in Solomon's porch. How many of you want to see many miracles and wonders in your midst? I do. Acts 8, 5 to 8, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the many miracles which he did. For out of those having unclean spirits, many came out crying with loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. So one accord, unity brought miracles, healing, joy, and deliverance. How many want to see that in your midst? Unity, joy, miracles, deliverance. I want to see that. Acts 15, 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So unity brought the commissioning of Barnabas and Paul. Really, the commissioning to them, to the Gentiles, which ushered us into the kingdom. That was a pretty incredible, pretty incredible moment. Unity brought commissioning. 
Romans 15, 5-6, May the God of patience and consolation grant to you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one mind and one mouth you may glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're like-minded together when we're of one accord. Unity brings love. Unity brings encouragement one to another. It's like the lost art of the church. Unity is the lost art of the church. Why? Romans 13, right in the midst of Romans 12 and 14, because it requires love to operate in his power. Power without love will hurt people, and power with love will be safe every time. You know, John, John the Beloved, the one who rested his head on the chest of Jesus, that's a pretty good place to put your head. So when you go home today, just when you, maybe you take your Sunday nap. I like Sunday naps. Lay your head down on the pillow and think, what would it be like to lay my, che- my head on the chest? You realize he, if he lays his head on the chest of Jesus, you know what, that, what he hears? The, his heartbeat. And what does he ask? Oh, Lord, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Hearing the heartbeat of Jesus, he says, let it not be me. And the Lord shares with him who it is. The only place for negative discernment is filtered through the heartbeat of God. The only place, when you see something negative in someone, the only place for that is the heartbeat of God. What is the heartbeat of the Father towards this person? That's John. Hearing the heart of Jesus, he hears the pronouncement against Judas. The only place to hear something negative about someone is what is the Father's heart for this person? So but we, have to, we have to want his power more than we want our way. We have to want his spirit and his presence more than we want our way. That's that's not easy for us, especially in the day and age that we live in. We have to want him more than we want ourselves. We were talking uh, over over one of the lunch breaks or dinner breaks, and we're talking about just how different, even even 20 years ago, in an area like this, how different it used to be, where you'd have like, people would go to their neighbor and they'd share seeds for their crop, and they'd like they're, they're, everybody took care of each other. But the more, it's almost like the, the, the longer this culture goes on, the more isolated we become. We start locking our doors at night because we're afraid someone's going to break in. Because it's a, it's, I'm not saying it's not an actual thing that happens. It is. It's almost like we just get more and more, we become more and more and more and more isolated. Autonomous. As opposed to more and more and more community-minded. I think that's changing today. I think people are getting so fed up with being alone is starting to change today. I really do. And to grasp that, loving one another. But, and one of the reasons I wanted to just share that exhortation towards unity, one is what Jesus said in John 17. I do not ask for this 20, 20, verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does he just say there? This, pausing right there. He said, if I'm in you and you in me, and they're in us, unity will then witness to our presence in them. That's essentially what he said. Okay? The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. That, but not just so you can have glory, that they may be one even as we are one. So our oneness demonstrates his glory because he is one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, our unity convicts the world of his love for us and for them. Why were people added to their number daily? Because they saw the love of Christ shed abroad in the heart of these people who were sharing everything in common, going towards the same goal, looking at their master, falling in love with their Lord and Savior, and they said, I want that. Paul said it this way, you've become the fragrance of Christ in the world to those who are perishing. Okay, if you get 50 people being fragrant, it's a lot more fragrant than one person. It's a lot more fragrant than one person. One rose smells beautiful, but a sea of roses is overwhelming. To God, God tests our ability to serve one another and love one another. by make, but When we go through difficult circumstances, you don't have to make it difficult. Our choices make it difficult in and of itself. He tests our ability to remain united and submitted one to another so that his glory can be seen through us, not just to test us arbitrarily. And your ability to submit to leadership, even when you think leadership is wrong, is a direct test of your ability to submit to God. It really is. I'm not speaking from lack of experience there. <laughs> so, so, you know what submission does? It unlocks God's justice to operate on your behalf. Because you say, I'm going to remain in this place and wait for you to move and change the circumstances. As opposed to taking it into my own hands and saying, now I can control these, and I can do this, and I can change this. I'm, and, I, and don't hear me say that you're to remain against in, in a place where someone's manipulating, abusing you, and using their power against you. David left Saul when Saul tried to kill him. I think that's a good principle. When your pastor tries to kill you, you can go. <laughs> but he stayed with Saul until Saul started chucking spears at him. And I love Gene Edwards in his book, A Tale of Three Kings, where he dramatizes the, the story between Saul and David. He says, every spear Saul chucked at David killed the Saul that would potentially arise in David's heart when he'd become king. I said an early church father, he said, um, stay in your place in the midst of offense until you're no longer offended, and then you can leave without offending others. I think that's one of the wisest statements I've heard about, should I, should I stay or should I go? If you, if, you're, if you are offended, don't leave, because you know what that does? That drives offense deep into the heart, because you make a decision based on the offense, and then you, you reap what you sow. It's the grand law of the universe, reaping and sowing. If you make a decision based on anger, that anger lodges itself deeper into your heart. Because you've just acted on it. You've just justified it. You've just become aware of it. You've just said this is okay. Better to endure the pain until God's worked in you the humility of submission and say, okay, now I can leave. Because you know what? People then can send you and celebrate you. Love is so tantamount, but love is love is not just a feeling. That's much, that's very little of it, love being a feeling. One facet of love is unity. Many facets of love, but one facet of love is unity. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. You know what peacemakers do? They bring unity. Peacemakers don't just go and placate people in order to have a false sense of peace. They go to a person, if they have an issue, or that person has an issue with them, let's work this out. Go to your brother. That's why Jesus, Jesus even gives us the prescription for dealing with circumstances in the midst of us. So go to your brother. If you don't win your brother, go with two or three more. So it was almost like he realized that we were going to have problems we'd have to deal with. So I, I, I wanted to 
bring this out before moving into prophetic ministry because one facet one facet of the church is prophetic ministry it's not the facet of the church it's one facet of the church if prophetic ministry was the thing the church did there'd be a lot of really starving poor people there'd be a lot of really sad widows and orphans james didn't say your religion is pure and undefiled if you prophesy over people he said no your religion is pure and undefiled if you take care of the widows and the orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world so one facet of the church is prophetic ministry it's not the facet of the church it's one facet of the church because it's one facet of god it's not the facet of god it's one but one so one facet of prophetic ministry is to bring unity either corporately or individually because you establish the vision that people can look towards and run towards we have a purpose because god has spoken and said this is what we're to do because that gives us a vision and a purpose in the moment so the grander display what's the vision and purpose of the church at large and then the individual gatherings What's the vision and purpose that God's placed upon them comes through in a moment when God speaks and he establishes that in the hearts of the leadership, in the eldership team, in in the people around, and then everybody runs towards that vision. So prophetic ministry can give you a vision to run towards that breeds unity. But it can also do it individually as well because as you watch someone receive, is then we can come in and celebrate what that person is receiving and move towards that in heart and intent blessing and praying as that person is receiving right that actually gives us a focus for our heart and our soul and our intent to be set towards that person as they're receiving that thing so we can celebrate who they are and then what the word that's released over an individual especially when it's released publicly and corporately over an individual actually helps the church come alongside that person and watch them walk into their destiny the prophetic ministry as a facet of the character and nature of god helps to release unity and increase. And so when you have unity, you have faith because you see God moving. And we said, Romans 12 says, you prophesy according to the proportion of your faith. It's no wonder that when Saul came into the company of the prophets that his heart was changed and he began prophesying because they were united in faith, intent on one purpose, to glorify God. And that stewarded an atmosphere in their midst that changed a man and caused all of, his, all of his insecurities to fall off in the moment. And we know he walked back into them in, in the Old Testament. But it says he came into the midst of the company of the prophets. They were singing, worshiping, praising God, and prophesying. And his heart was changed and became a new man and began prophesying with him. Wow. That's what I want. Unity. Intent on one purpose. Pursuing your Lord and Master. Loving one another. Letting offenses bleed away because they're not really in the grand scheme of things. It's not that important. If you think about it, wow, that person said something that really offended me. Oh, great. Like, does that make a difference in heaven? Like in 20 years, is it going to matter to you? Is it going to be important? You know what? You know what? I have more lasting consequences than that? Forgiving the person. Have incredible consequences. Forgiving the person of incredible consequences. Far more than holding on to trite little things that upset us day to day but forgiving the person of far more lasting consequences. Those consequences can be good, they can be bad. And for those, that, him, Romans 6, he who, or that which you submit yourself to, you become slaves to. Whether to sin leading to licentiousness or righteousness leading to more righteousness. So and what, I, what I want to move into is a time of prophetic ministry where we can celebrate one another. Where we can celebrate people, people having 
a destiny spoken over them. The heart of the Father spoken over them. And they can celebrate one another.